Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies uh, or Ponce's. Um, I might end up saying it that way. I don't know. You guys have been pressuring me pretty hard. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff. So come think with me. Uh, as my as I uh, always do in the podcast, I, I have to promote myself a little bit. Um, if you guys like this podcast, please become a Patreon supporter. Uh, you can find the link in the description. Um, other ways you can support me, subscribe to the channel. That'd be huge. Leave a comment. Let me know what you guys think. I'd love to, to hear from you. I love continually hearing from you guys in the comments. And then a uh, super erogatory act would be going over to Apple Podcasts, leave me a five-star review and a good comment. That'd be huge. Um, today, we have another special guest, as always, or as most always. Um, we're going to be talking with J- Dr. J.C. Beale about his book, The Contradictory Christ. There we go. And uh, there's... I want to go in deep, and I'm really scared about this one. Uh, as I've told him, he's pretty convincing. It's kind of scary. So, um, without further ado, let's just let's just pull him in, Doctor Beal. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. I I first heard of you. Uh, unfortunately, this was the first time I heard of you, but I think it was last year or a year and a half ago. I was in Doctor Tom McCall's uh, PhD class on Trinity and Atonement, and he had mentioned he's going to Notre Dame and he's going to be talking about some weird contradictory Christ stuff. And he came back and I saw a picture on Facebook of uh, some of the work on the, on the board and I didn't understand any of it. And I was just like, man, that's crazy. Okay. I'll just put that to the side. And then you've been taking the internet world by storm. Uh, It's so intriguing. And now like I'm after I've, I've read it and got into the book more and listened to some of your, um, your episode podcast episodes you've been on it's freaking me out, man. It's, it's, it's pulling me in and pulling me in. But before we get into the the contradictory Christology type stuff, I wanted to ask you some, some logic questions. Mm-hmm. Um, well, how do you end up, do you call yourself a logician or you, uh, yeah. How do you, how do you describe yourself as a philosopher? So, um, I mean, in general, I think people are what they do really. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, I, I do logic, uh, I do philosophy of logic. Um, and I've always had a, a very real interest in theology, but only recently have been doing analytic theology, but yeah, I mean, if you talk with people in philosophy and you mention my name, they'll say logician philosopher of logic. Um, uh, but yeah, so I, I don't really, you know, I just, I don't really call myself much. I just, (laughs) I just do what I do and uh, I let other people come up with what they want to call me. Well, that's cool. Cause I, I I do want to call you a logician. It's just fun to say, I just, you're, you're a logician. That's, that's fantastic. Mm. Um, you'd mentioned, I, I heard in a different conversation that you grew up in the reform tradition. Is that, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, Is yeah. Dutch reformed or American reformed or? Uh, Amer- I mean, it was it was right when I forget all the splits. I mean, one thing that frustrates me about um, the the Christian Church generally, but the um, you know once the Protestants uh, split off, um, uh, just the 
always splitting more and more on things that it's like, hey, look, you know, everyone's supposed to be following uh Christ, that's supposed to be the the big common point, right? Mm-hmm. And you would think that Christ had the foreknowledge to say, like, oh, and by the way, don't ever, you know, stick with people who are going to say, you know, this or that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it drives me crazy. But yeah, I I mean, theology early on, um, Calvin Burkhoff, um, mm-hmm. and and that crowd, although. Uh, those were in my dad's library. He wasn't in any way an academic, um, but uh, we had those uh, in the library. And um, I really got into those and read them. I probably didn't understand very much of any of it, but um, I also very much liked I'd go to used bookstores so- and I got a book by um, Bart and one by Tillich and, one by uh, well, Bonhoeffer's letters were, sure. were really powerful. Um, but yeah, in terms of the theology itself, it's just very much in the, in some ways, in the, in the um, what's sometimes called the Princeton tradition. But okay, do you, do you still find yourself in in that uh, in that stream? Yeah, I mean it. So part of my work now is to really um, try to tried to see the extent to which um, that stream and my um, considered views overlap. And I think it's, so I take, I take the, you know, I think of Orthodox, this term is used so many different ways. So I I tend to think that sort of Orthodox um, Christian theology you know, is at least up through uh, the Council of Chalcedon four five one, <clears throat> where it sort of stamped the the uh, Christology um, and Trinitarian um, uh, doctrines. Um, these are the core distinctive doctrines by my lights of Christian theism versus other kinds of theism, and um, uh, you know, when it comes down to a lot of other detailed questions. I don't think I've ever held a position. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just want to get the main doctrines. I, I want to understand those and get them right. And then all the other stuff hopefully will come out of that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, so that, that kind of sets up uh, my next question. How do you how'd you become a logician? It, it doesn't seem like a, a supernatural path for a lot of people. And there's doesn't seem like there's a ton of you guys out there. How'd you become one? <laughs> That's right. Well, <clears throat> um, well, look, I mean, I was always, um, you know, I, I had some talent um, mathematically. I had some talent philosophically. Um, I find a lot of philosophy very difficult and, um, you know, despite my best efforts, I've, I'm not the most patient person. And so, you know, a person will raise a philosophical question and, you know, it's like, well, can you be a little bit more precise? And, you know, some of philosophy is an attempt to get precise about the question we're asking, mm-hmm. but there are different ways that that process can go. And um, 
you know, my natural way is to try to understand the key terminology that's being used to voice the question or voice the issue or voice the thesis, and then try to understand how that how that's to be understood. Um, so um, this is just natural to me. And when I started taking logic, I found that very natural. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my first sort of exposure to sort of what you might call deductive thinking or something or logical thinking was in um, Euclidean geometry. And I, uh, I actually kept these journals that I no longer have. And I really, really wish I did um, just out of mere curiosity, but um, um, Euclid's geometry just struck me as so natural that when I would keep, journals and write different things down um they all sort of would take this sort of form of like trying to state as precisely and concisely the various you know axioms of the position or you know what are the axioms uh what what's what are the key terms and so that's been with me for a long time yeah and basically you know that's what sort of logic does um broadly construed well you did You've done that in this book, I think. Did you do that intentionally? Because it it's very clear. Like all your positions, it's just this is what I believe, this is what I believe, this is what I believe, and you're not hiding really anything. Right, right. I, I actually think that that's the way um, uh, philosophy should be done, period. And I think it's the way um, certainly analytic theology should be done. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's the way – look, if you're pursuing a true theory, then – you know, what is it? And, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't sort of state it and leave obvious questions around. Um, And if you say, here's basically the theory, but I'm not, I I realize there are these questions and I don't have answers. That's one thing. Sure. But to state it when there are obvious questions without, you know, clarifying that to me is um, just not a fruitful way of proceeding. Yeah, I've, I've, um, it's actually, that is a little bit scary to lay out. I, I've done it. I've noticed that I did it actually reading your work. I was like, you know, I don't always do this in my papers. And maybe I do it subconsciously or even a little bit consciously to hide my position a little bit. I, I, it's a, it's a less clear target for you to attack. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, in philosophy and um, some strands of theology, um, you know, a, a lot of it is seen as sort of trying to maintain a position. But, you know, if you step back and say, but look, the position itself isn't crystal clear. Yeah. So uh, that that's one thing. But even where it is crystal clear, you know, um, you should welcome attacks in in the following sense. Maybe attack is the wrong word, mm-hmm. um, but you should welcome attempts to knock over your position. Right. I mean, if your position can't take absolute, sincere, deep uh, scrutiny, well, is it really worth holding? Hmm. Um, th- this has always naturally been my view, and I, um, I, I encourage everyone, my colleagues, um, my students, um, 
friends, everyone. Um, look, if you, you know, it's one thing. If you're gonna, if you're just out playing around, or you're trying to entertain or win a debate, okay, do whatever you want. But if you're trying to, um, you know, pursue truth and try to construct a true theory, if that's the goal, no matter how far you might still remain from it, but if that's the goal, then you should be excited and honored by people who try to show problems with the theory because mm-hmm. how else are you going to figure out whether it whether it really stands up yeah yeah that's a, that's a great point and and it's it's encouraging and uh challenging for me as well uh, i've even noticed it in in analytic circles as well um you know oftentimes i i, I consider myself maybe in the, in the analytic tradition, but we, we blast those continental folks for using all their, their, you know, flowery language. But a lot of times uh, analytic philosophers will add uh, unnecessary uh, operators when they don't need them or, and then they're still also likewise hiding their position. Um, and I've seen that as well, where, where you, I did appreciate how clearly you wrote there's, there's, there's some operators in there cause you have to get to that stuff, but you, you didn't uh, extend them beyond what was necessary. And I, I thought that was really helpful. Good. I'm really pleased to hear that. Yeah. So, um, uh, so getting back to, to some logic, um, like mm-hmm. specifically, where do you find logic? Where, well, where is it, um, what discipline is it under? Is it own its own discipline or is it a subcategory of metaphysics or epistemology? Where, where do we find that? It's definitely not a subcategory of epistemology. Okay. Um, you know, um, so the, make sure that I answer your question, but, <laughs> okay. but th- this is an important, th- this is an important um, point. So for a long time, people would think of logic as good reasoning, but this was, I mean, you sort of know what they mean. They mean like, you know, I'm pointing to this as a reason for that. So I'm pointing to that as something that is what? Well, something that follows from this, mm-hmm. right? Or uh, is entailed by this and so on. Um, so that, you know, they talk about reasoning, but in the end, um, it's a dangerous conflation of um, something that's entire, entirely empirical with some normative uh, aspects, the question of what it is to you know reason well and all that. Yeah. And then there's a question of logical entailment and mm-hmm. what is that or logical implication or logical consequence. I'll just use these synonymously here. Um, uh, I think these are very different things. Um, and, you know, people often think that epistemology, you have to sort of, um, like you think, you'd think that logic is sort of a sub-discipline of epistemology because after all, epistemology is how we know and, and this sort of stuff. And you would think, well, logic's a big part of that, how you get to know. But no, it yeah, it's a part of it, but it's, these are very different things. Um, so there's a um, philosopher, Gilbert Harmon, uh, who actually, for what it's worth, um, is in some ways held positions that are similar to um, some of the positions that have been popular in um, Protestant theology. 
Um, I mean, he would never put it that way himself. But mm-hmm. if you look, it, it, he's like always sort of um, anti-evidentialist and all this. Um, mm-hmm. But he he pointed out long ago in a book called Change in View that that look. A theory of reasoning is one thing. A theory of logic is very different. And one big different thing is that uh, logic itself, logical entailment, is what logicians call um, monotonic. And this just means that if you start with a valid, a logically valid argument from A to B, you can add whatever you want to the premise that adds C, then the argument from C, A uh, together valid logically validly gives you b now add d you just that's monotonicity you can expand mm-hmm. that way um but you know giving a good reason for or having a good reason to accept or having a good reason to reject this is not monotonic at all this is all over the place you could mm-hmm. have you know um an example i've used elsewhere is um You've the the final exam draws from say a hundred questions, and you have mastered those questions. You've perfected the answers. You you have these down, and you've practiced and practiced and practiced. And you know, um, because you've aced them in every one of the many practice exams, um, that gives you good reason to accept that you'll do well on the final. But now add to the premise set beyond you've aced every practice exam and the final draws from those. Now add to the premise set that your calendar's messed up and the final already took place last week. Yeah. Well, that, that now you no longer have good reason to think you'll do well in the final. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, having good reason to accept or reject something is very different. It's a messy thing. I don't think we'll ever have clean cut rules um, uh, for that. Yeah. Um, but logic is very different. It's it's a sort of you know logically valid or not, and it's 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 fairly simple to define and so on. Yeah. So logic is mono- monotonic. Is epistemology, would you say, like like polytonic or something? Well, yeah. So, it, I mean, it would depend on uh, the, the um, subdiscipline of epistemology, whether, I mean, if, if we're thinking of um, rational belief revision, um, acceptance, rejection behavior as a subdiscipline of epistemology, then the relations involved there are very much non-monotonic. Um, uh, but in as much as logical entailment and other relations like this play some role in epistemology, Mm -hmm. um, then there's some monotonicity that's relevant, but I don't think, so unlike, um, the relation of logical consequence, epistemology itself, isn't just a simple relation and you can ask, sensibly whether it's monotonic or not as a discipline it's all over the place sure um but actually you would ask me yeah where does it fit where does it fit yeah yeah yeah. um well so rather than sort of go into try to i mean i will if you want me to but um uh 
There's a paper I wrote with uh, John Burgess um, at Princeton, a very well-known logician and philosopher of mathematics and philosophy of logic. And uh, I think this was um, for Oxford Scholarship Online for their entry on logic. And um, and that's available. We had to truncate it to fit their whatever they wanted for that. Uh, but um, But... A fuller version is available on my website. Just look for logic under articles and it's with John P. Burgess. Um, and that basically just gives you a sketch of the field of logic. So mm -hmm. normally logic these days is broken up into um, philosophical logic and um, uh, mathematical logic. Uh, mathematical, it's both are very mathematical in a right. lot of ways, but um, mathematical logic uh, is a field within uh, mathematics. Um, and it's usually broken up into four subfields, model theory, recursion theory, set theory, and proof theory. Mm -hmm. And those are all, you know, you... You'd really have to become expert in that mathematics to to engage with with those. They're just yeah. you know if a person is doing proof theory or model theory or what recursion theory, they're simply proving uh, theorems about open problems in those mathematics. But you uh, philosophical logic is a bit different. Um, it's still exceptionally technical. Um, uh, if you're looking just at, let me say, for lack of a better word, the mathematical parts of the of of the logic in question, mm -hmm. but philosophical logic usually breaks up into things that, you know, um, so-called modal logic, so-called um, you know, deontic logic, so-called non-monotonic logic. Despite what I just said, this is a tag. I think it's unfortunate terminology, um, and I can explain that if you want. Is but, that, is that um, fuzzy, does fuzzy logic fit in there? Fuzzy logic would be in that, yeah. yeah. yeah that's just um, a sort of many-valued, uh, can be done different ways. But okay. um, um, And uh, intuitionist logic, this is a, you know, this is a... Um, account of logic that's supposed to be tailor-made for certain conceptions of truth in mathematics. Um, um, yeah, so, um, so, but philosophical logic is distinct, very distinct from the philosophy of logic and distinct from the history of logic. It's not to say it's unrelated to either. It's deeply related to both, but it is... Um, so when you're doing philosophical logic, you're, you're defining, um, um, you're, you're defining a, uh, relation of, I'm trying to be as neutral as possible. Um, <laughs> you're defining a relation of, um, sort of a, a sort of deductive like relation, mm -hmm. um, what follows from what? And and if you're coming up with a new um, philosophical logic, generally you're inspired by some philosophical problem, or you're you know you've been thinking, here's the way it has to work, and 
then um, you define this up and um, uh, yeah, sorry, without a, without, it's too difficult without like a, a, a whiteboard. I was just about to spill into giving you how to do it. Here's how you can create your own logic. But, um, but so, so look, um, um, philosophy of logic drives a lot of times uh, philosophical logic. Um, it's usually you have some philosophical problem, like take a famous example of um, so-called modal logic. Um, and I don't like calling it logic for various reasons. I think at this point, um, uh, it, I mean, the terminology doesn't matter as long as we're clear about what we're saying. But I, I have started to think that calling all these different things logic sort of um, contributes to a confusion about what on earth we're debating when we're debating whether logic is non-classical versus classical or I've, something. I've had that same, that same experience because I, now I hear about Boolean algebra and Boolean yeah. logic and, and all these different ones. And then I listen to the uh, computer science guys and they got their own logics for creating right. different, you know, computer yeah. games. And yeah, yeah, like that. yeah, 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 exactly. And these are just, I mean, again, the, the terminology, it, I don't care one way or another, so long as we're clear about sure. what we're talking about. But I do think that um, when we're debating whether logic itself is non-classical, um, there we have to really be clear about what it is we're debating. And we, we can talk about that if you'd but, like. But well, um, so would, would you you'd find a difference... Um, between philosophy of logic and philosophical logic, because yep. I've, I've heard like like Susan Hack, I yeah. think her book is Philosophy of Logics. Yeah, and then it's yeah. been interchangeable. Is that a set like today? If I yeah. find that distinction and say, look, there's philosophy of logic and philosophical logic, yeah. are other people going to say, yeah, that's right, that's that's agreed upon? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, okay. uh, no, there's, there's no, absolutely no question. Cool. And as I said, um, see this piece I did with John Burgess, okay. um, and John is a you know, he's a um, he's in a lot of ways a very conservative um, and longstanding member of the community in logic and um, philosophy of logic. Um, and so, yeah, that's just available on my website. But okay. that that will give you a sense. There is absolutely no question. Anyone who says that. Um, I mean, OK, so there's this there's a British usage um, and this is really where a lot of the confusion comes, I think, is there were various textbooks, including um, uh, Susan Hack's um, uh, Philosophy of Logics. Um, but there was another one, Introduction to Philosophical Logic and all this. And that's basically Introduction to the Philosophy of Logic. Yeah. So um, there was this usage in um, Britain where... Uh, Philosophical logic was just a stand-in for philosophy of logic. And, uh, yeah, it's been really confusing. But I think for the most part, when people use uh, philosophical logic today, if they're, if they're actually practicing logic, like right. if they're actually doing logic and not just philosophy of, um, they recognize and... and um, try to maintain that distinction okay. because after all it could be that you never um do any 
any logic yourself, but you start reflecting on the philosophy of logic, right? Mm-hmm. And you could do that without. That's where I'm at, kind of. Yeah, I, I love going, going deeper. The meta, you can go to the metaphysics or meta logic kind of questions. Without, I'm not very good at straight logic. I'm trying to get better, but that's that's a, it's a totally different thing to to actually do it than to think about its foundations or, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, but that distinction is absolutely, okay. absolutely stable. Um, it's. Um, yeah, it's as stable as the distinction between mathematical logic and those four major subfields and, um, philosophical logic. Okay. So, um, man, there's so many things that I've, I've been waiting for a logician to come on to. I don't want to, I don't want to, we're going to, I'll cut it off like halfway and we'll go into the Christology stuff. But like, um, I'm, I'm thinking of like Girdle and I read, uh, I read, um, Oh, I forgot her name. Uh, Rebecca Goldstein, maybe her mm-hmm. her take or her uh, biography or whatever on on Girdle, and she introduced his his theories and stuff. Seems like he kind of like blurred the mathematical and and philosophical logic. Like he's playing in both sandboxes, and I I I wanted to do it so bad, but then I saw some of the mathematical logic, and I was like, I don't think that's ever going to be me. Well, I don't know that he blurred them. I mean, remember. Uh, Gödel was um, had his own, um, as many of the great logicians have, um, had his own philosophical thoughts. Mm-hmm. And um, um, you know, my understanding is that uh, Gödel um, he was motivated by a particular philosophy of mathematics and uh, was sometimes, you know, Platonist philosophy of mathematics where this reality is out there. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, he just wanted to get it right. And, but so his work wound up being, you know, of, of deep philosophical interest um, though many people in my view, you know, they, they try to read way too much into uh, way too much philosophy into the results, but, um, yeah. uh, but Gödel, um, he was simply doing, um, mathematical logic. It just turns out that, uh, what he was doing, um, is of real interest to, um, philosophers okay. and the question of how much interest, it really is. I don't know. I mean, it gives a nice example of um, of a certain kind of um, um, incompleteness of a, a what's called a non-prime theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, prime theory is one where the theory contains a disjunction, P or Q. Mm-hmm. Uh, if and only if it contains one of the disjuncts. But, you know, he's looking at, for example, um, standard arithmetic. This generalizes quickly to set theory and other things. But um, uh, because these are closed under classical logic, they have excluded middle P or not P uh, as part of the theory for every P in the language of the theory. Mm-hmm. But... Um, Gödel's result is that, you know, if this stuff's consistent, then there's some P such that neither P nor non not P is in there. Yeah. Um, so, but, 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 
yeah so well that that sets us up pretty well actually um and uh so there's two two following uh trains of thought here so one where, where you brought up the platonist that the girdle was a platonist he he wanted to yeah um establish that or or defend that that view and like you said like a lot of people grab his incompleteness and go into the philosophy of mind and say therefore you know robots can't ever think and stuff like that um yeah i don't know i don't know enough about that but um the other one is uh he, he kind of uses I've heard, I don't know enough about to actually confirm this, but I've heard that he used a type of liar paradox or used a liar paradox in order to establish uh, his first incompleteness, I think. So that brings us to, to liar paradox and and uh, the, the metaphysics of logic. Yeah, yeah. What he used, and this isn't, we, we should not go into Girdle, um, okay. but, but um, I mean, we can, but, uh, but, you know, what he used was closer to... Um, um, it wasn't it wasn't quite uh, a liar but it was very similar so okay. saying 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 something like that is not um wildly off but what he did was just show how um um in some sense you know in standard mathematics um so long as certain relations hold within the theory then the theory always can talk about the syntax itself. Mm -hmm. Um, and once you have that going, then you can, yeah, get in some sense of self-reference. Um, um, but, but stepping away from the precise details of Gödel's results, um, yeah, the liar is, I mean, look, this is just, You don't need mathematics. I mean, um, can, can I, I, I want to spend some more time on the liar. Can we just real quick? Cause we're, that'll, that'll take us. I'm, I'm ready to do that, but real quick, um, the metaphysics of logic. Do you, do you think, um, sorry to interrupt. Do you, do you think that, what, what are you a deflationary theorist? Are you, you a realist concerning logic? So, so people, uh, yeah. So, uh, um, so <clears throat> I think that, that we have a um, what I call a transparent truth predicate in the language. Um, so this to me is the um, clearest case of what philosophers sometimes call a deflationary, a deflationist uh, truth predicate or disquotational truth predicate. Mm-hmm. But for me, there's at least one one predicate in the language, and I'm just going to use true here, um, such that when you predicate this predicate of a sentence, um, then the sentence itself and that predicate are absolutely, um, you know, um, intersubstitutable anywhere except in, you know, um, typical um, so-called intentional context. But um, um, yeah, so, and I wrote this book, Spandrels of Truth, about yeah. uh, about that. And, um, you know, when you bring in a predicate like that, um, you get unintended um, side effects of the predicate. And one is these typical paradoxical sentences. Um, you might say, why do you ever need a predicate like that? If you already have the sentence P and the sentence P is true using this transparent predicate is 
absolutely, you know, um, intersubstitutable there. Why did you need it? Yeah, is it redundant or something? Yeah, well, the answer is, I mean, um, um, I, I wrote a paper uh, long ago. Um, I forget the name of it at this point. But uh, but I basically said that God could uh, specify all of reality without ever using the truth predicate. Mm. Um, because... Um, you don't, you don't need to, I mean, God can, can just say, you know, can just say, this is true. This is true. This is true. All through everything. And like, you know, um, Parker is sitting, um, Parker's got, you know, um, uh, the, the, you know, this book on Parker's shelf is, uh, colored yellow. This, this book is colored, uh, blue. This, the, you could specify all those. What does it add to say it's true that, um, or, or the sentence, this book on Parker's shelf is yellow. This book, the sentence, um, this book on Parker's shelf is blue. What does it add to say, oh, and that sentence is true. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't add anything. So why do we have it? Well, a typical story that um, so-called deflationists say, which I think is right, certainly about this notion of truth is um, they point out, well, try to say uh, that all of the books on, um, or sorry, every sentence about any of Parker's books is uh, is true. Um, or every sentence of the form, book blah, has a, you know, has color, has a colored jacket or whatever. If you want to say every one of those sentences of that form is true, how do you do that? Well, you you put a name in for the first one. Book one has a colored jacket. Book two. But, of course, maybe you got, you know, a couple thousand books. You could do that with enough time on your hands. You know, you could go through and list them all, and you'd, you'd completely do it. But let's suppose that you have um, – you know, more books it doesn't have to be infinitely many, but it could be. Um, how are you going to do it? You can't. You have to quantify in that way. So that's the role that the truth predicate plays. It allows us to sort of do these long generalizations that that God could do in you know a, a flash. Yeah. But but we can't. Oh, that's an interesting distinction. Then okay. Yeah. Just, it reminds me of. Maybe I'm totally off, but but uh, Frege's uh, sense and reference. I think he talks about that the interchangeability or whatever of of truth, and and then Davidson picks that up and applies that to facts, and it freaks me out too. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, all those things are related. I mean, I think there's some unclarity in uh, Frege and some unclarity in Davidson on on these points. Um, not to say they were wrong, but but there's enough unclarity that they might not have been talking exactly about this, but, um, but yeah, so, okay. You asked me, am I sort of a deflationist (laughs) about truth? Well, I mean, I think that um, a central notion of truth is this transparent notion and you call it deflationist if you want, but I mean, I've, I've, I've told you how it works. And, um, uh, but if you ask, do true sentences have metaphysical consequences or something like this? Or does saying that, you know, take the sentence, 
um, Parker is sitting, right? Take that sentence. Now consider the sentence, Parker, the first sentence is true, right? So there's an attribution of truth to the sentence Parker is sitting. Yeah. Okay. You might be asking, does that second, that attribution of truth have metaphysical consequences? Of course. I mean, the whole point of this truth predicate, as Quine said long ago, though in a slightly different context, but um, the whole point of it is to talk about reality, is to talk about the world. It's just that, as I said, with a long list of sentences about your books and stuff, you can't always talk about the world because of just limitations on time, or maybe there are infinitely many claims about the world that, you know, your theory is trying to make. To do that, you just say, all these are true. Hmm. Um, So here's a simple example, right? Take um, excluded middle, either P or not P. Now, you might not think that that's logically valid, but you might think that many instances of that are true. In yeah. fact, you might think infinitely many are true. Well, how would you say that without a truth predicate? You couldn't. But the whole point is you're trying to talk about reality, right? Yeah. You just have to use this tool, uh, this truth predicate to do it. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I get that. That's good. Okay. Well, Okay. I didn't, I, I skipped over this one, but that it brings us to the relationship between logic and truth. And um, is, is truth rightly the, the study of truth? Does that, is that uh, equally split up the way logic is, or is that like, is that synonymous uh, with, with logic? Um, so again, the word logic is used in so many different ways yeah. that let me just tell you what I think. Yeah is relevant here. Um, So what's relevant is um, the relation of logical consequence. Mm -hmm. So, or logical entailment. Um, This is a relation that's defined over a very small set of vocabulary, namely the logical vocabulary. And um, this relation is at the bottom of every true theory Um, because you want, if you're, you know, if you're doing a systematic theory, you're trying to get to the complete truth uh, as far as you can, uh, you know, but um, then you're going to want to close your theory under an entailment relation that will tell you all the consequences of what's in the theory. Mm -hmm. And when I say close it, I mean, if some claim in the language of the theory is a consequence of a claim in the theory, Mm -hmm. then that claim that's a consequence is also in the theory. So that's what it means to be closed under. And logic, there are many entailment relations tied to different uh, vocabulary in different languages and um, defined over different spaces of logical space. Um, logic, uh, logical entailment is a sort of foundational basement level one. That's it, the it, sort of it applies to all of them. Yeah, it's yeah. it applies to the um, it looks at the um, so-called topic neutral vocabulary and and the reason the vocabulary is so called is that. 
it's involved in all true theories. It doesn't matter the topic. Um, you might have, um, you know, vocabulary. If you're giving a true theory of, of knowledge, you may have vocabulary about beliefs and justification and all this. But that vocabulary is not going to be in your true theory of physics. And it's not going to be in your true theory of the natural numbers. Um, so, but all those theories will have in common the elementary logical right. topic neutral bits that kind of connect things together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So I, I hope that helps. I mean, as, <laughs> as I said, your questions are so sort of deep and like they each deserve, um, you know, a semester long um, <laughs> yeah. seminar. I appreciate you so much for, for even uh, giving just a cursory take on those. Uh, I'm, st I'm still here. My thing does that sometimes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I appreciate you doing that because yeah, you're kind of putting yourself out there too, where you're like, Hey, I've spoken about this. I wrote a whole book on this. Everyone go check out, check out your books. Um, I was actually, I saw you had one with at least one with Grand Priest and then one with uh, Glansberg, Glansberg, Michael Glansberg, Michael Glansberg. Yeah. yeah. And it was just, it's great. I, I was so sad that I couldn't get into those books before we talked. So you have to come back on and we'll, we'll have to be able to talk about some well, more of those. I, I would love to, cause I'm doing a follow-up book on, um, I mean, I'm always happy to talk about logic and yeah. stuff. I mean, that's what's, um, you know, that's near and dear and I'm still very active in it. I'll, I'll, after the current book, I'll be doing a follow-up to Spandrels of Truth. But okay. um, awesome. the current the current book is a follow-up to the Contradictory Christ. It's mm -hmm. on the Trinity. Yeah. Um, but is so, that gonna be is that gonna be called the Contradictory Trinity? It was. It's gonna be called Divine Contradiction. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Nice. That's good. Yeah. All right. So let's get into the liar, so we can set up um, Gluddy and and, and uh, Gappy, and then we can get into the Christology. So. You want to just run ahead with it and, and, and lay out the liar paradox for us? Sure. Um, and again, for more detail, I, I, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I wrote a Stanford encyclopedia piece on this, uh, on the liar paradox. Um, oh, no way. That's crazy. I, so I, I've used that. I did an episode on the liar paradox and I, I taught in the undergrad here on that, on that. Yeah, so I, and I use that. So if if that's by you, then I've already used your work. Yeah, yeah, I think it was me. I think that uh, I yeah, I'm almost certain that was me. Um, me and and Michael Glansberg, a friend of mine. Um, oh man, I should oh, check the author more often. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so I just say that for your um, viewers, if they are interested in. Yeah. Um, and actually, just uh, two years ago, um, uh, a book of mine with. Glansberg and another logician, um, David Ripley. Um, we published a book called Formal Theories of Truth. And this this is um that was also with Oxford. And that's basically for people who have never stepped into par liar paradox and truth, formal truth theory, that yeah. book was written for them. Okay. Um, so that just came out in, I think, 2018. Um, there may be a paperback version now. I don't remember. Okay. But I just I just looked up the SCP on it. Yeah, it's it's Beale, Glansberg, and Ripley. That's how oh, okay. they're so, I've okay. read this three or three or four times. That's so okay. funny. Okay. Okay. Well, anyway, look, the liar is um, it's something that, um, you know, um, is very easy to understand. So, um You've got uh, you've got a sentence that says of itself only that it's false. Mm -hmm. So here's an example. Um, at 
you know, okay, whatever time it is now, mm-hmm. the sentence I'm now asserting is false. Um, uh, okay. Well, um, you know, according to the classical logic account of logical consequence, either that sentence true or it's false. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So it has to be one of those. Well, if it's true, then the thing is false. Mm-hmm. So if it's true, it's false. Um, in which case, since we're saying if it's true, it's false, so it would be true and false. Now, if it's false, um, well, that's what it said. That's, that's, that's exactly what it said of itself, that it's false. So it's also true. Um, so the, the simple liar is one that's true if and only if it's false, and because on the uh, classical logic account of logical consequence, which remember applies to all true theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least if those who think the classical, the classical logic account is correct, this it's, it applies to all true theories. Hence it applies to your theory of truth and, and so on. Um, so you've got uh, a contradiction, um, the liar is true, and it's false. Um, well, according to the classical logic story, that explodes the theory into the so-called trivial theory for the language, which is just the theory containing all sentences in the language of the theory. All right. Is, is, did, is that the principle of explosion? Did you... Yeah, 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 yeah. Classical logic. Uh, yeah. So from from the principle of explosion is just from an arbitrary contradiction. And by contradiction, I simply mean a sentence of the form. It's true that P and it's false that P. Right. Um, where the truth and falsity operators here are logics um, often ignored logical uh, nullation uh, or the null operator. Um, it's ignored because it's like redundant or something. It's completely redundant. Yeah. Unlike a truth predicate, but we won't get into that. Okay. Um, uh, and well, it's the, good that you distinguish because I, I thought that I thought that's I thought they were the same, but I'm glad you distinguished. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, in fact, there's ab- logic itself has a truth operator. It's just usually ignored um, because yeah, I saw it in your book. That it was like one of the first times. It's a little like T thing, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you can use whatever you want. It's okay. almost never made explicit, but I think it's a shame because I mean, nobody rejects its existence. It's just that, you know, it's usually left out. Um, But the problem with that is you lose this sort of um, beautiful symmetry of logic. So logic's falsity operator is it's false that, and that's just logical negation. Yeah. And then the other side, the dual of that is it's true that. It's just that people forget that that's in there. So they always put conjunction and disjunction and so on. But so you have truth and falsity operators, basic to logic. Um, that's different okay. than the null, though. The null and, and negation. The, the null, I would just equate with the truth operator. It, okay. It's basically, yeah, it just basically takes takes a sentence and gives you something logically equivalent to that sentence. Okay. Um, but you can't, there's a big difference between having the truth operator and a truth predicate. The reason is that every true theory... Uh, has logic's truth operator in it, whether it's made explicit in the syntax. Oh, or not. okay. But they but don't all have the truth predicate. They can't. Like, yeah, because uh, then everything. Know, t- yeah, take a classically closed theory, like you know, 
piano arithmetic or many theories in metaphysics, you know, or many, you know, they want to close it on the classical logic. You can't have a truth predicate then. Yeah. Um, at least not one that that has a standard behavior. Yeah, the truth predicate is predicating truth, and it's saying this is true with a not with a null operator is just it's it's for uh, symmetric uh, symmetry, and it says here's here's the falsity, uh, the negation, and here's the not and okay, but it's not saying it's true or false. You can see that in a yeah, yeah 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 you're getting there. So let me let me point you to another um, paper that uh, that might be useful. Just uh, we don't have to talk about it, but it might be useful for your interest or your viewers, and that is. Um, uh, transparent truth as a logical property. I think that this too is on my website entailments.net. And um, um, this came out in a book edited by Michael Lynch and some others, um, uh, readings on truth. It just came out by MIT Press. Um, but there I distinguish, you know, the truth operator and the truth predicate and all that. But you can think about it this way. Here's the difference, right? This isn't the question you asked, but <laughs> you might as well, you might as well, if you're interested. Yep. Um, so a, a, a sentential connective or a sentential operator, and at this point we're talking about unary ones. Um, mm -hmm. These are ones that take exactly one sentence and make a sentence. So, um it's true that that takes it's got a blank there and you put in a sentence and you have a new sentence namely it's true that p right so if you took the sentence p put it in there you have a new one it's true that p um but you have to have the sentences to begin with mm -hmm. before you can apply the operator yep okay now consider a predicate. A predicate has a blank, the way an operator does, but it doesn't take a sentence. It takes the name of something, right? Ah. Uh, so I'm just talking about unary predicates. So, sure. um, and we'll just even restrict it to to sentences, um, to predicates that are you know uh, applied to sentences. Um, so here uh, has has more than fifteen words in it. That's a predicate. It's a unary predicate. But you'd need the name of a sentence uh, that you could put in there. So mm -hmm. take the sentence, but name it. Parker is sitting, and you put that name of that sentence into that the gap in that predicate has more than 15 words in it, and you produce a false sentence. Um, uh, consider the unary predicate has less than 15 words in it, Put the same sentence, Parker is sitting, name that, put that in that gap, and you get a true sentence okay. and so on. Okay. So that's all. So, so sentential operators take sentences. They have to already be there. Predicates take names of sentences. Well, they take names of all sorts of things. <laughs> We're focusing just on that's predicates nice. applied yeah. to sentences. Okay. Now, that's where you get the liar paradox. Yes. You don't get the liar paradox from the truth operator because you didn't have liars in there. So you couldn't like generate a liar by using the truth operator because you already have to add the sentence to begin with. Um, okay. okay, that that's that's important because sometimes people will maybe it's maybe I'm getting this right. Sometimes people say there's no semantic content to that sentence. 
And so yeah. it's it's not a it's it's a faux sentence. And let's put it aside. And I've I've thought that I, I know other philosophers do, but I know lay lay folks as well who just go, eh, it doesn't seem well, like that, it. Well, that 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 though is a different. That's different between the distinction between the operator and the predicate. Right. Um, just to tie that off, and then we'll get jump jump. Okay. But um, I just want to show you that to generate a liar, you have to have a truth predicate okay. versus an operator. Once you have a predicate. Well, according to the grammar, you can put whatever name you want in the predicate's gap, mm -hmm. and you thereby have a sentence. So to use a sort of variation of uh, an example that Saul Kripke used, um, you know, take the name Bob and put Bob is false. Um, according to grammar, that's, that's a sentence because it's got a singular term put in the one gap within the unary predicate. Now, um, of course, the mere syntax doesn't say anything. Right. So it's always under, uh, you know, it's what the semantics is. Mm -hmm. Well, there is absolutely nothing, as Kripke emphasized, um, standing in the way of letting the name Bob denote, wait for it, the sentence, Bob is false. Yeah. If that denotes that very sentence, then now the sentence Bob is false talks about itself. Yeah. And it says of itself nothing more nor less than it's false. Uh -huh. Okay. So that's the difference between predicate and uh, unary operator. Um, but you got the sentence that I gave an example. Um, this very sentence is false. Um um, as you say, some people say that that's meaningless or whatever. I say, okay, well, I would, I would love to know how. Um, hmm. And if they can explain in what way it's meaningless, I, I would really like to learn that. Um, if they say, well, it, it entails a contradiction, I'm like, well, I mean, even by the lights of classical logic, um, contradictions aren't meaningless. They can stand in the relation of logical consequence. Right. Indeed, they have more meaning than anything. They entail all sentences yeah. in the classical story. Well, so so just with the, the plain liar, um, I, some people, I think, I don't know if Boss Van Frossen totally follows this or not, but he at least lays it out in, in a paper that people will use like a Strassonian presupposition and say, right. it's a failure of presupposition, and so it's neither true nor false, and then you move on to the to the strength and liar, but uh, or the revenge of the liar. But concerning the actual liar itself, could you say it's a failure of presupposition, and that's just the the plain liar is neither true nor false? Um, yeah, as yeah, I mean, I think you certainly could. You could say okay. it's neither true nor false. Um, you know, you'd you'd be in uh, you'd be going against the classical logic account of uh, logical consequence. But, I mean, to me, how people ever thought that that was the right account across the board, like as the right account of logical consequence versus the right account of how the logical vocabulary behaves in a particular theory. Yeah. I, I, I just don't know how this ever yeah. happened. But anyway. Well, so um, that would that would make us, if we did follow Van Frost in there, that would mm -hmm. that would put us into saying that there are um, there are gappy that would make us gappy theorists. Like we would we'd have gappy sentences in our vocabulary. Then that's uh, that's um, well, 
Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that Van Frossen's program and Van Frossen uh, remains very instrumental um, and influential in, in my career. But um, uh, I think that his program is, um, even by his own lights, is not promising as a as an account of the liar um his pre his um his supervaluations uh technique is enormously influential and a fantastic um uh tool um but as applied to the liar i mean the reason i'm humming and hawing is that uh <laughs> to say on his account that it's neither true nor false i mean if you use his notion of super truth and super falsity, then yeah, it's neither super true nor super false. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a simpler way of getting, a, yeah. it, it, uh, by the way, I'm a, a um, boss. Um, Van Frossen um, was very influential uh, in my career, as I said, and I love his work. He's still doing great uh, work in philosophical logic. Um, uh, and so I don't want anyone thinking that sure. I don't think well of that. But I think just for pre in the present context, it might be easier just to think about rejecting classical logic on the um, excluded middle part. Okay. Uh, that is that every sentence is either true or false. But you don't have to go the Van Frossen route to do that. Okay. Um, you yeah. could... There are plenty of um, simple subclassical uh, um, ways you could go for that. Okay. Okay. So, so with, when it comes to the liar, before we get to the strength and liar, um, no matter what, would you say? So, yeah, Van Frossen, it's it's really tech, it's technical, and and maybe it's maybe it's incorrect uh, for just explaining that to an intro to philosophy student. Um. Are you? Are, what, what do you make of the of the liar paradox? Are you, are you? Would you tell them this is neither true nor false, or do you have different language for that? Okay, so for for a simple liar, look on the on the account of logical consequence that I think is is correct, mm -hmm. and um, you know, if you want to know why I think it's correct, the best place to go is my paper, uh, the simple argument for subclassical logic. Okay. Um, uh, this and a copy of this is available on my website as well. I mean, these are all available in journals and stuff, but um, so a simple argument for subclassical logic. Um, the, the account of logic that I think is correct um, uh, excluded middle, that is either P or not P is that that is not logically valid. Hmm. Um, uh and moreover, it's dual um, of explosion, P and not P, uh, gives you everything. That's that's not logically valid. So let me point out the these are mirror images of each other. Let, yeah. The dual, uh, what I meant by that was, so excluded middle is usually some people just say, well, P or not P, that's logically true. What they mean is logically valid, and then that's supposed to entail the truth. Um, but you know, really the way to think of it is um, arbitrary P uh, 
um, conclusion, arbitrary Q or not Q. Okay. Mm -hmm. And excluded middle says that going from arbitrary P to arbitrary, the disjunction of Q and not Q is logically valid. If you turn that upside down and spin it, you get, um, you know, arbitrary P, uh, arbitrary P and not P. Because a disjunction turned upside down is a conjunction. Um, did, you, is con P did you just do a contraposition by explaining? No, no, down? I just flipped it and turned okay, it. Okay, because um, that, that might be really helpful for me, thinking through yeah, logic. And yeah, just, that's helpful. Yeah. Wow. But, but now explosion is just the sort of um, uh, P and not P, arbitrary P and not P gives you arbitrary Q for any Q you want. Excluded middle is arbitrary Q uh, gives you P or not P yeah. uh, for any P you want. Um, and the account of logical consequence that I think is correct is one where both of these just go way beyond what logic uh, validates. Yeah. Um, so in my case on the liar, which is, uh, which one to know, um, a sentence like this very sentence is false. Yeah. That logically that can be gappy. Mm -hmm. That is neither true nor false. Um, but it can, it can be glutty. It can be both true and false. Um, okay. but, um, look, Logic alone is not going to tell you what the truth is. Yeah, I love it's, I love that you said that. It doesn't press the issue you said. Yeah, it doesn't. It truly doesn't press the issue. Force um, issue. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, um, when we're trying to, to come to true theories, we're usually following rules of thumb. Um, if it were if there were precise rules for finding the full truth and nothing but the truth, look, life would be so easy. Um, but it, but it's not. So we're guided by these methodological rules of thumb. And one is when you're trying to give the truth about a particular phenomenon, um, you know, you want to give the complete uh, theory. That is um, the full truth about it. Um, that is for any sentence in the language of the theory P, um, you want to either put P in the theory or it's logical negation. It's false to P. You want to put one of those. You want to decide one of those with respect to the, the phenomenon you're working on. Mm -hmm. There's also a consistency constraint. For any P in the language of the theory, try not to put both P and it's false to P in there. Yeah. Just put one. So the completeness says put at least one. The consistency says put only one. But then there's also a very important constraint at work in our best science, in our best philosophy, in our best theology, in my opinion, um, is guided by this sense of simplicity. Mm -hmm. And not just an Occam-like simplicity, but simplicity and naturalness. Okay. You, you take these three rules of thumb... And you're looking at, you know, you're giving a theory of truth and you're looking at the liar paradox, right? Okay. Well, um, what are you going to say about this sentence? Well, the completeness one tells you, try to put either the sentence is true or the sentence is false. But if you put either one of those in there, then you're forced to buck the consistency constraint. Yeah. Well, if you try to be consistent, you can do that. Logic says you can do that. But now it's like 
what about the simplicity constraint and naturalness? I mean, here you've got a sentence that says absolutely nothing more nor less than I'm false. Uh-huh. Isn't the most natural treatment of this thing? Logic allows you to say it's neither true nor false. Logic allows you to say it's both. You're after the simplest, most natural count. Isn't that to say it's actually both? I mean, after all, the thing is true if and only if it's false. Yeah. So wouldn't that be a weird case of both? Yeah. There's another self-referential uh, sentence in the language. I'm true. It says of itself nothing more nor less than that it's true. It's a truth teller. Okay. Logic allows you to say that that's both, but why would you? Right. Why would, you know, why it allows you to say it's neither. And there it looks like, well, in that this case, it looks like a gap. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's a, it's a systematic theoretician that that forces the issue because logic doesn't. Logic doesn't have a voice. Yes. yes, you're exactly right. I mean, logic, logic constrains the theory. It gives you the broadest space of possibilities from which your theory can draw. Mm-hmm. And then part of theorizing is to try to get the full, uh, as consistent as, as reality allows, together with the simplest and natural one, you're trying to carve out from those gazillion logical possibilities just the space where that are theoretically possible. Yeah. Given the phenomenon, it's reality that's going to determine that. You say, well, how do you know? Well, of course, that that we don't. We just do the best we can, and we try to come up with the right um, account. Yeah. You don't know in advance. If we did, it would be easy. Yeah. Okay, I'm thinking maybe someone in, in the comments or, or something might be, and maybe it's me, uh, or thinking, what about, like, we didn't talk a ton about modal logics, but isn't there some kind of modality concerns that we can do from our armchair and just say like, mm, this is not possible. Um, well, people can do whatever they want, especially <laughs> from their own armchair as far as I'm concerned. But, um, but look, I just see no reason. Again, I would say, um, go to the, go to my paper, a simple, uh, the simple argument for subclassical logic. And there, look, the point is this, um, we have, and we haven't even talked about theology, which to me is like, that's that's the most uh, important and interesting case. I mean, yeah. but people who think you can escape these weird paradoxical sentences have just not engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, even Tarski, who uh, uh, is a great logician, um, he basically said, if you want a truth predicate uh, for your theory, it can't be in the language of the theory. You have to give it in a different one. Otherwise, you get you get these liars and all that. And he said... It sounds like I, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, he said, I am not, though, hereby giving you an account of truth in natural language, in real yeah. language, because he said, real language allows for all this stuff. Yeah. Um, uh Anyway, yeah. um, no, that's that's really helpful. I think in my episode on liar paradox, I talked about there's this Jewish philosopher, and he was talking with uh, J.L. Austin at Oxford. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I forgot the Jewish philosopher's name. And he's he's awesome. 
he's not he was he was, happened to be a jewish guy and he was also a philosopher but he had the Jew, jewish witticism and he talked about having two affirmatives making a negative and austin's getting all his feathers getting all ruffled no no and he goes out through all the logical consequences and showing how it's not possible and the philosopher looks at it and goes yeah yeah yeah, well, that 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 story has been attributed to just about every witty philosopher <laughs> on earth. So I don't know where the truth resides on sure, that, but that's sure. right. Yeah, okay, yeah, because yeah. our our natural language is richer or fuller, and it, it yeah, that's right. Okay, that's right. so um, so we got the the uh, simple liar. Um, oh man, what's the 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 more simple liar? The um. The one below the liar. So they got the the strengthened liar, the liar, a weakened liar. I guess the weakened liar. Would you say just just false? It's. Oh, do you mean you mean the truth teller, or what do you no, mean? No, uh, we didn't talk about it. But the the weakened liar is like the one that's less. Maybe that's a particular to Van Frossen's take. Um, we don't have to talk about that. But let's let's. Okay. Okay. So so you have the the simple liar, and that is um, yeah, it's both the the strengthened liar or the revenge liar. Maybe you could lay that out for us and then tell us what you think about it. So uh, really, details matter and what to say matters. So um, the strength and liar occurs once you try to give um, some account that goes beyond the basic uh, language that we started with. So um, let me just give a pattern for your viewers. Um so take um, um, you know uh, take uh, the simple liar that says I'm false and um, uh, that's supposed to be um, you get a contradiction it's either true or false then it's both um, so um, but people might think okay well um this this whole sentence we have to give up the principle that every single sentence uh, or proposition however you want to talk uh yeah. is uh true or false um there's an exception the bad sentences they don't they don't get to be true or false so your response is the 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 simple liar is bad yeah. and that's problem solved yeah okay um well, remember, language will always um, it. These things are unavoidable, and to see how um, okay, you've got this new category of bad, um, and um, bad is supposed to be somehow in contradiction with truth, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and falsity, I guess. Right. So, um, so now. Um, consider the sentence that says, um, uh, either I'm false or I'm bad. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, what are you going to say? Well, your big solution is supposed to say it's bad, but if you say it's bad, then one of the disjuncts is true. Mm -hmm. So now it's true and bad. So lo and behold, you've got true, but nonetheless bad sentences. Yeah. And so now some people will just sort of not see the inevitability of this pattern and will say, okay, new category, super bad. Well, 
I mean, you, you, now you can tell me what the problem is, right? It's going to be, okay, either I'm false or I'm bad or I'm super bad. <laughs> um, and so the revenge uh, problem is um, just that. It's that every time you try to introduce new um, categories for these things, it looks like you get the problem back. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's so great. And so through through the liar and well, I guess do you say the strength in liar is both true and false? Well, it depends. It depends on which I mean, see that's the other thing. Um if we're using just the transparent notion of truth that we discussed earlier, yeah. Um then the strength in liar really reduces to the simple liar. Because if that's logical negation in there, when you're saying I'm not true, then that's just logical negation. It's false that and the truth operator is transparent. So it's going to reduce to um, I'm false. That's what I thought. But but I think do you have a different take as well or? Well, for that, no, I don't. I mean, but but if you. Sometimes we're not talking about um, transparent truth. Sometimes we're using some more robust notion of semantic truth or something. And in that case, um, uh, I don't think that a a strength in liar would reduce to the simple. Um, But I'm not even it's not even obvious that we get a simple one with a more robust notion of truth. So, okay, okay, yeah. So all this to to say and to set up the fact that there are um, there are gappy sentences which are uh, or there's glutty sentences which are both true and false, and I don't know if we've established that there's gappy ones that are neither true or false, but it kind of depends on how you're answering the solution. But you're saying, hey, natural languages has more options than just the truth and false. Yeah, and and yeah. it's sub it's you you call it subclassical. To me, it's like there's there's four categories now, so it should be like super. It's like above and beyond what the classical. Yeah, yeah, say. yeah. You're you're not the first to say that. Um, um, but the reason I say subclassical is that um, if you take all the patterns that the logical the classical logical account validates, mm-hmm. so according to the classical logical theory. Um, you have all these patterns, including arbitrary P implies Q or not Q and the dual explosion. Um, um, the subclassical account just chops off some of those. So that's why it's a sub-relation. Ah, because you've, logical you've lost the principle of uh, excluded middle. And explosion, that's right. And explosion, okay. Yeah, so you, you cut those off and you have a, a proper sub-relation yeah. of the... And by the way, I mean, my own view is simple. Um, what's the situation here? Well, my view is that logic being topic neutral and universal, mm-hmm. um, it only validates so much of what the classical story says, but where you get those extra principles being valid is within the constraints of a theory. So classical logic as we know it was actually constructed as an account of how the logical vocabulary behaves in true mathematical theories. Yeah. And I think it got it right. But um, 
There are very simple ways. And again, um, I could point to various papers. These ones are going to be a little bit more technical than the ones I've talked about. But, um, um, you know, basically you get classical logic back from the sort of subclassical relation that I think is correct for the universal mm -hmm. uh, relation. You get subclassical or you get the classical relation back as a special case within a theory that does what? Well, basically it rules out the logical possibility of gluts. And it yeah. says, sure, those are logically possible, but for, for this phenomenon, they're not even they're not even theoretical option. Yeah. And, and, and the same with gaps, you rule both of those out and the, the logical entailment now just behaves like classical logic. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's interesting. Another interesting thing was you, you, you talked about how classical logic is more of a modern phenomenon than we, than we usually think. You, we always back to Aristotle all the way back. And, and you mentioned how it's kind of a more of a modern, even 20th century, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. late 18th century. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, 20th century. Yeah. 20th century. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, invention or, or not just invention, but, but phenomena that's, that's arisen. I thought that was really interesting. Um, subclass. Oh, um, some people, you know, this because you've been on different shows, but they'll want to do a really simple, um, they'll try to do a simple reductio and just say, well, you know, how about like the law of non-contradiction? Should I believe that Dr. Beale, uh, his project is, both true and not true. And they'll want to say that, you know, the law of non-contradiction still applies to every uh, system. And I, I think you've affirmed that though, haven't you? Like you've, you've said, well, maybe you said logical entailment instead of non-contradiction. Logical entailment um, is a relation that's in every true theory. Mm -hmm. It underwrites the entailment relation of any true theory yeah. and every, um, um, but um, explosion, that is an arbitrary contradiction, entails whatever you want. All of yep. the sentences in the language. Um, that is certainly valid within some true theories, no question. Mm -hmm. And if you're puzzled by that, just go back to what, what I said. I mean, look, yeah. logic provides you four basic possibilities, right? For any given sentence, logic says, well, it could just be true by itself, could just be false by itself, right? Um, it could be both true and false. Yeah. So the theory has to contain both P and its negation. Or it could be neither. It could be gappy with respect to the sentence. So the theory contains neither P nor its negation. Mm -hmm. um, that's logic. For any sentence in any uh, theory's language, logic gives you those to start with. But the hard work of theorizing is figuring out the ones that are right for the bit of reality you're looking at, the yeah. phenomenon in question. Um, and here, uh, you know, my own view, um, there are philosophers and logicians who disagree with this, but my own view is that mathematics itself is entirely, the truth about mathematics is just classical. So um, what happens in, in true mathematical theories, and again, um, Zach Weber, Chris Mortensen uh, actually think that there are 
and one of the pioneers of, of contemporary uh, paraconsistent logic, Florencio Asenjo. <clears throat> um, uh, they all thought that uh, contradictions are in our true mathematical theories as well. Um, but that, that is that leaving out contradictions, you're leaving out part of the truth. That's what they thought. But I, I think that um, true mathematical theories, or at least some of them, let's just say, leave it there. Sure. Um, they are closed entirely classical. How's that? Well, Again, at the start, logic gives you all these these basic four possibilities. And in mathematics, you just rule out the gaps and the gluts. Yeah. Well, once you rule those out, you've thereby ruled out, on one hand, when by ruling out the gaps, you've ruled out any counterexamples to excluded middle. Hmm. Once you rule out the gluts, you've thereby ruled out any counterexamples to explosion. And so if the reality is fully described without any of those things, it's going to be classically, all those principles are going to be validated. The question is whether, um, uh, I mean, it just, it's just so hard for me to see how anyone could think that um, those two possibilities exhaust logical space given, given, you know, brief reflection on reality. Well, that is a perfect setup for, for the theology. Um, why the, the question then is why, why should we, or shouldn't we rule out gaps and gluts in our philosophical or in our theological uh, theorizing um, just a, a real brief um, a biographical note. Did you come to this position of the contrary uh, contradictory Christ first, like growing up thinking, you know, Christ is contradictory, and then I'm going to do my logic in order to, to help establish that or explain that, not establish? Um, or did, were you doing, you know, grand priests in your ear and you're talking about, you know, maybe dialethian options or something, and then you came to see, oh, this actually could be helpful in theology? Um, I, I would say it's a bit of both, actually. Mm -hmm. um, um, it's it's, would... You chose the glutty option there. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a false, uh, false choice. Um, yeah, so I would say, um, I would say a bit of both. I mean, I don't know anyone who, you know, reflects on the incarnation um, understood as uh, Christ being one person, uh, fully human and fully divine, and doesn't see apparent contradiction mm -hmm. um i i i i don't I, I don't know anyone who's and um um uh and yeah i never really i just saw that as something else i didn't really apply logic to it really i mean i wasn't when i first started thinking about it i was um, not sufficiently systematic in my own reflection. And um, I just sort of took that to be, well, that's one thing, you know, but like, and then when I would sort of go after the truth about something else, it would always sort of, um, you know, I would, I would behave as if these contradictory or gappy options weren't available. In the case of Christ, the gap, just isn't available. Um, though in chapter five, I give what I think is a completely underexplored and fascinating uh, gappy theology that um, 
somebody needs to take up yeah. uh, just to just to see how far it runs. I, I I have my own reasons for thinking that it's not the correct view, but um, anyway. And there's some there's some orthodox constraints maybe saying you know Christ wasn't really a man and and now he's no longer God if if you take a good guy exactly yeah. exactly if you allow that stuff to go, to to go but actually no I'm saying hold the hold, hold the uh, orthodox claims um, anyway yeah, it, sure. I forget in chapter I I think in the index uh, gappy gap theoretic theology or something is in there but that um, anyway. But my own view was, uh, yeah, um, I just kept these things separate. Um, my own work in logic and philosophy of logic, yeah, do- dovetailed with um, uh, like Zach Weber, Chris Mortensen, Graham Priest. Um, Greg Restall is a close friend uh, and um, a fantastic logician. Um, uh, Greg is um, uh uh, is not a glut theorist himself, but he's probably knows as much about glut theory as anyone on the planet. Um, uh, so all that, yeah, I had, I had time to think hard about the logic. Um, and I spent most of my career, I mean, in philosophy, I'm mainly known for logic and philosophy of logic. And, um, I think that had I tried to publish some of my work on, uh, in analytic theology before doing all that hard work on logic and philosophy of logic, it just, it would have just been more, you know, just more work. Um, and, um, uh, so, so yeah, how did I come to it? I, I, I can't say the one was before the other. Um, there, yeah. And I do know a logician, um, but I'm not going to mention his name. Um, he wouldn't be broadly known in philosophy. He's well known in paraxist and stuff. But he actually, um, his own Christian views led him to uh, look at uh, paraconsistent and paracomplete uh, mm. logic. Yeah, but I'm wow. not. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I don't feel at liberty to talk. He, he never talks about it publicly. So Okay. Yeah. So um, – some people might be frustrated at this, but I, I had to ask you all these things. Uh, I've just been waiting so long to to talk with uh, a logician about this. So so now we can get into like the contradictory Christ. And again, in the book, I don't know how many times you said it. Maybe I should have marked it, but you say, I genuinely mean it. Christ is a contradictory being. I'm not hiding. I'm not uh, using flowery language. This isn't a good sermon topic to, you know, I'm not making a point. I'm saying he literally is a contradictory being. Can you, can you lay that out for us just uh, briefly? Yeah. So can yeah. Continue? yeah. Um, and by the way, before I do, um, I don't know how much editing you do, but I'm thinking for the sake of your viewers, you know, uh, feel free to chop everything in half, uh, <laughs> but do yeah. whatever you obviously. Yeah. I've got some that are, that are two and a half that people really like. And this is just so interesting. I know I have a lot of philosopher, uh, professors that listen which i did not expect and they're gonna eat up everything you've already you've, you've talked oh, about okay okay yeah. okay um okay so right shifting to the to the theology um right so when i say so the main thesis of that book um uh the contradictory christ is that christ is a contradictory being what do i mean by that well As we said earlier, a contradiction is a sentence of the form. It's true that P and it's false that P. Okay. Mm -hmm. P here is any declarative sentence. Um, Think of it as a 
propositional variable, whatever you want. It's true the P and it's false the P. And by the way, the true it's true that and false that are logics unary operators. They're not some fancy, you know, highly technical notions or something. Okay. Um, so that's what we mean by a contradiction. It's true the P, it's false the P. A contradictory being is one of whom a contradiction is true. Um, uh, so a contradictory claim is one that entails a contradiction. Uh, a contradictory being is a being the true description of whom entails a contradiction. Mm-hmm. All right. So in what way is Christ a contradictory being? Well, exactly as it looks from, you know, standard core uh, Christology. Christ is fully divine. Christ is fully human. Um, To many, this just appears to be a contradiction. Um, uh, Now, as you said, if Christ were more than one person, okay, no, not even a hint of contradiction because you could have the one divine Christ being divine and the one human Christ being human. And but but that's that's been uh, rolled out as non-standard. So that's not the core um, uh, doctrine. Um, I, I thought that was a, a really helpful note that you you mentioned, and I. I uh... I, I heard it in, in different interviews that you've done, but you said, this is what all the heretics wanted to do. They all wanted to get rid of the contradiction. And, and so not, it doesn't necessarily mean if you're trying to get rid of a contradiction that you are a heretic, but that way lies heresy. So be careful if you're going to do that. that, that that's exactly right. I think that sometimes people are taught that, um, you know, heretics and I mean, it's horrible, the history of, you know, heretics being, you know, right. uh, burned at the stake and, and, not, and worse. Um, yeah, and um, all this great analytic theology being done in St. Andrews, but every time I go there, I cringe when I go for a walk and I see this big monument to the martyrs and the cathedral that's been burned down. And oh, anyway, um, um, yeah, so heretics, they, they're, it's not as if they're like these, you know, bad or lazy or stupid or whatever thinkers. These people are like, Okay, well, that can't be right. One person fully divine, fully human. Okay, here's an idea. Fully divine, just appearing to be human, Mm -hmm. but not fully human. Or instead, um, uh, fully human, not really divine, but an important representative, like uh, some of the great prophets or something. Anyway, yeah, you go through all these different heresies. They all resolve from an attempt to... Uh, consistentize Christ to try to give a, a true, complete, and consistent account. My own view is you'd be better off um, uh, if, if consistency is so important. And I take it that you know God must have declared that only consistent theories are true um, for for such passion to be behind this search, but. But if if consistency is so important, then just chop off half the truth. Just don't, you know, just leave it out. Hmm. Cling to, 
you know, that remember the three methodological rules. One, seek complete theories. Yeah. Randy sentence P in the yeah. language, try to give either P or it's false that P in the theory. Consistent, try never to give both. Simple, natural. Well, if consistency is such a big deal, then just chop off half the truth. Um, and, uh, you know, don't don't allow the, um, just block all the entailments. You could even have the claim Christ is um, fully divine, Christ is fully human in your theory, but you refuse to close it under what that entails. Yeah. Um, hey, you you can get consistency that way. By my lights, yeah. a responsible, systematic uh, thinker has to, um, you know, try to give the full story and close it under the entailments. Um, but well, we have theological reasons for uh, for bracketing off in the theological system. We have we have internal rules for bracketing off gappy solutions because they're, they're heresies um but but you would say there there are no systematic or there are no theological rules for bracketing off uh glutty options there's no there's no heresy of affirming a, a contradiction according to the person of christ well well i mean i think that i think that I think that standard, the doctrine, the standard doctrine of Christ that is that's definitive of mm. of uh, core Christian theology um, does affirm a contradiction. Yeah, it's just that everyone wants to say, "Oh no, 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 no!" But of <laughs> course, it's not contradictory. It only looks that way. Yeah. And I'm like, "Why do you say that? Truly, why do you say that?" And you know, some answers will be. Well, because it can't really be a contradiction and it's logically impossible. Well, this tells me that the person, um, you know, is simply hasn't engaged in sufficient reflection on on uh, a theory of logic. Uh, and if they have, perhaps they're holding um, classical uh, classical logic more tightly than or they're prioritizing classical logic over what we think what the the naive or naive not in a bad way but just the the uh like folk or just the immediate understanding of of christology you're prioritizing yeah, I mean, your classical logic above look, look right you've seen this right so um uh you know you start saying look this the standard doctrine is that christ is one person fully divine fully human mm-hmm. And it's like, well, then fully divine has all divine properties, right? Um, all the limitlessness. Uh, fully human, well, has all the limits that, that are involved in, in, in uh, being human and so on. And immediately, it's like, okay, we c- this is hard to make sense of because it, like contra- it, it looks like it's contradictory, so it can't be contradictory, so... And then they start running instead of letting, you know, the, the reality of that drive the actual theory and say, no, this is what we hold. Yeah. Um, instead, people go through. All, and of course, you know, um, uh, another um, person whose work I respect uh, deeply and um, and as a friend, uh, Oliver Crisp. I got an I got a, a chance to look at your interview with Oliver. Oh, yeah. And um uh, you know, and, you know, there's 
people start talking, well, it's just sort of a model or they say, or it's just analogical or it's just, you know, well, what are we doing? Right. I mean, either we're, we're trying to get at the truth and we're, and we're giving it in which case don't say this is just analogical unless you, unless you explain what on earth analogical, this is, this is true analogically. Okay. What does that mean? Is that some new notion of truth that's like true by degrees or no, it's predi- it's analogically predicated. Okay. Well, what is that? Tell me there's no account of what it is for the exemplification relation to be. Okay. So, th- th- so I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> and, um, and then it's like, maybe it's an- another language. Well, what's true of what's true of Christ and what's true of God is in a complete, a different language that we don't have access to. Okay, well, then now you've lost me. Like, I have no clue what you're talking about. Right. By the way, I'm not, I'm, I didn't mean to say Oliver Holt. No, of course. But, yeah, but, but um, a strong a strong sense of, like, ineffability is like, well, now we don't know who God is. So you've also cut exactly, off God. Exactly. So let's back up and let's just say, right? The claim is Christ is one person, fully divine, fully human. Yeah. And that looks like it entails that Christ was omniscient and that Christ is ignorant, and and so on and it's like well hold on now we're just be contradicting well you know the 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 standard doctrine is there because to say less than christ being fully divine um and to say fully human is to leave out important truths of christ when you realize that you achieve both through contradiction, people want to say, okay, but we're, we're, we're still sensible people. We make sense. It's just like we have this analogical way of talking, which never gets laid out, hmm. by the way. I mean, I can think of different ways of modeling it, but none of it ultimately works. I mean, it's not as if uh, – I mean, I don't know why people think – it somehow is not fully embracing and respecting the transcendence of God unless you say that our language can't really apply. I think the real driver there, I think that that's, I I have never seen good argument for that. Um, I think the real driver is if it's not that, if we're not actually like speaking in some non-standard way, then we're speaking with contradiction. Yeah, And so th- this is what's driven my book is it's like, look, realize in settling the reality, drive your account of what logical consequence. You're wedded to this position about logic that itself is independently implausible. Yeah, that's that's what was scary for me when you started turning me uh, towards your view, because it. It's not at first, you know, not knowing a ton of, of of your ideas in theology. It seems like, well, a lowest common denominator. Hey, um, it's kind of a defense. It's kind of an apologetic move. Instead of trying to come up with some big theory, we can just say Christ's contradictory. But after hearing you more and reading your book, it's really motivating because you're saying, I want to start with the phenomena of theology and then we'll go from there. And if this seems like a contradiction, then it seems like we can have contradictions because this is one of the most important things that we could get right on. And so let that drive our theory instead of some other theory, which you say is classical going back to Aristotle, but might not actually be. 
And so in that sense, your project is so much more simple than everyone else's huge model. But one of the benefits, and I know you know this, is that you've had years and years and years of saying, it's not crazy to say, mm. uh, I to affirm not a subclassical logic where the right. rest of us are like, driven in by all of our philo- intro to logic classes that yeah, that yeah. is crazy and you just made god a liar right yeah yeah and that's really i'm glad you said that um uh, let me flag by the way that that you know aristotle said some things about uh non-contradiction and excluded middle and stuff but the the theory of classical logic as we have it was devoted no, nobody knew exactly what on earth Aristotle was saying. He did elaborate on a number of things, but but when you try to make them precise, it doesn't go very well. Mm. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to say that people who say it goes back to Aristotle, well, Aristotle was harping against contradiction for sure. But of course, was Aristotle reflecting on uh, the liar itself? It was certainly around, but uh, he wasn't reflecting on it. Was he Was he reflecting on Christ at that point and the full divinity? Nope, certainly not. Yeah. Um, so anyway, okay. But as you say, I have had almost 20 years working on nothing but logic and the philosophy of logic. And it astounds me now that I'm... Um, engaged in analytic theology to see like i'm just not used to people saying oh but that's just so like i'm like what are you talking about like (laughs) and 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 people like um yeah it gets hammered it it gets hammered in and um um it's on it's unfortunate this is this is why I wanted to spend so much time talking logic with you, so people could see this is not some random dude who just came up with a theory. He's been doing all this work, and if you're going to come at like you're you're a nice guy, but you maybe you shouldn't be because if someone's going to come at you and say, "Well, you know, Doctor Beale," that's it's like how rude that you don't even respect him enough to know that he's not crazy. Like he's worked through this. That's right. I mean, I did see. Um, so so. Uh, you know, um, I did an interview somewhere and people were like, oh, this is just nonsense and all that. It's like, wait, I, I, like, I, I don't know that I'm a nice guy. I'm actually very impatient, but I do care about getting at the truth. And if somebody says that, I'm used to people saying, here's why. Right. I'm not used to people saying, oh, this is just, you know, this is, and walking away. I mean, Look, do whatever you want, but if if you actually have something to contribute that shows a, a, a serious problem, I would want to know. Like I, I very much want to know. Yeah. Um, but people who say, oh, contradiction, now you're saying God's a liar. I mean, okay. I don't mean this to be in any way mean, but I would expect that of maybe like a third grader or something like that, because they can't distinguish lying from truth and falsity. How is uh, Christ being a contradictory being make Christ a liar? Yeah. Where's the intention to deceive? Right. There isn't one. Yeah. So, so what, why would you ever say that unless you just didn't have the concept of lying versus yeah. saying something false or, you know. Well, so, so um, I, I do catch that. And if I could motivate it a little bit more, I might, maybe people are saying, okay, you've, you've entered 
you've you've allowed for a true contradiction Christ uh, of Christ's ontology or metaphysically like he he's a he's a contradictory being. Yeah. If if a contradiction can be true of Christ's nature or natures, then could it not also be true of the Godhead? And and actually writing a book about that as well. But could that not follow then? Um, God has told us that he's good. He told us that he can't contradict himself uh, or that he doesn't deny himself. We usually say contradict, but he, he can't deny himself. Could that, if he, if there's a contradiction that's true of his nature, couldn't he deny himself and not deny himself maybe? Well, I think people need to be clear about what they're, what, what exactly they're talking about. I mean, um, what do you mean by deny? I mean, look, the full truth of let's just talk about Christ for now. Yeah. The, the, the book on the Trinity is coming. Um, yeah. uh, but um, uh, let's just talk about Christ. So um, uh, the full truth of Christ uh, involves the claim that Christ knows all truths and that there are, um, there are claim, truths that Christ does not know. Mm-hmm. It's false that Christ knows all truths. Um, I would say the same for, you know, you look at the the history of theology and the wrestling, and actually Oliver, the, your interview with Oliver um, Crisp, he brings this out nicely in some of his work of the tension you feel between, because you're right at the verge of contradiction when you try to try to balance the, uh, transcendence and imminence of Christ himself, mm. right? And um, I've told Oliver that, you know, it's not tension. It's not tension. It's contradiction. The reality is is contradictory. And um, now, so the truth about Christ is contradictory. What do you, so if Christ, um if Christ says, um, you know, uh, there's something I don't, there's some truth I don't know, right? Well, there's, there's. I mean, it depends on. I, I'm not taking a firm stance on that particular claim, but, but because it's true that Christ knows all truths, that's got to be false. Mm-hmm. But it's also false that Christ knows all truths. So that sort of claim you'd naturally treat as true as well. Is Christ lying? No, of course not. Is he saying something false? Well, again, I'm not taking the official stance on that particular claim, but there will be many like it. Let's just stipulate that it is true and false on my account. Um, um, Is it false? Yes. Is Christ thereby a liar? No, I mean... You know, that's still just speaking the truth. Yeah, yeah, that's just silly to be a liar. It, you could tell, you could speak the truth and be a liar, right? Mm-hmm. A lying is all about intent. It often involves falsehood, but it doesn't have to. Yeah. But if Christ is uttering, is asserting the truth, um, if it's also false, well, it's it's also false. I mean, Christ is a unique reality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, there's a few more, and I, I think we can close it. Um, I feel like we haven't said anything, and well, I, I know, I know. Talk. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, 
I want to talk, you, you, you addressed the qua move, so-called qua move, or, or some theologians might know it as a partitive exegesis when you're exegeting text and you're, you're, you're parting out and saying Christ, you know, according to his nature, uh, human nature, according to his divine nature. There's a, there's a qua move and then there's Anderson's um, accru. Um, I'm sure you're not going to like this, but there's like a qua move that you can do if you hold to uh, like an authorial analogy that God is the author of the world. And um, it, he's, he's analogous to an author. So again, we're going at analogy, but he's a, analogous in that he, he authored the world by his speech. He spoke and it was just like an author talking created middle earth by writing. Right. Um, but he's entered into the story uh, in the, per, well, uh, in every act that God does, but also particularly in the incarnation. And so it's like a authorial qua move that a qua, the, the character Christ, he is limited in his knowledge, um, but qua his the the author outside of the text, the extra Calvinisticum uh, that that Christ has, he he's unlimited in his in his understanding. Why why not go that route? I guess it is it is act, uh, adding extra, right? It's adding a whole different theory of authorial analogy that, that comes with its own problems. Is that just it's just not as simple as as saying it's a contradiction? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, the, the core doctrine is Christ, um, is one person, fully mm-hmm. divine, fully human. Um, the core doctrine isn't Christ according to this story is that and this, and Christ according to that story is this and that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so now it might say, well, that that's the intended interpretation of the uh, core doctrine. Um, okay, then um, we have to ask, is this Christ the same person? Mm-hmm. Are all these properties Christ's? Um, so the omniscience, is that truly Christ's? Christ omniscient, mm-hmm. uh, the ignorance, is that truly Christ? And if the answer is no, then it's not clear that we're, we're talking about um, uh, the, the standard um, Orthodox doctrine. Yeah. If the answer is yes, then fine. Okay, great. It's a lovely, nice story, but it doesn't get around the contradiction because you still got Christ being all knowing and not. Could you, yeah, I like that. So, this is what I've been thinking since since reading the book. So, could you have the qua move and contradictory Christ? I think you could. The question is whether you need to. I mean, look, I think that the qua stuff is actually really important. Okay, that might surprise you. Yeah, but I don't think it's important because it provides a way, uh, a viable way around the contradiction. We yeah. shouldn't be trying to get around the contradiction. Okay. The reality is contradictory. The only thing holding you back from seeing that is this absolute, you know, th- sort of unfounded commitment to this theory of logic. Yeah. Um, but so the quant stuff is invaluable because it gets you around the contradiction. You shouldn't right. be getting around the contradiction. Otherwise, you're missing part of the truth. Mm-hmm. Well, then how's it valuable? Well, it's valuable in exactly the one place where everyone says it can't really be doing a lot of work. Namely, when we say uh, qua his divine nature, Christ is omniscient. Qua 
his human nature, Christ is ignorant. Um, what do we mean there? Well, if we're speaking truly and not running from the contradiction, we're explaining how it is Christ who has these properties. Yeah. So the qua move there is simply an explanation of how Christ has those properties. But it's not some way around the contradiction. Instead, it's an explanation of the contradiction. I think that's really, really helpful because um, in hearing people talk about your project, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I probably had this idea too. It's just like, we don't need explanation now because it's just, just say it's a contradiction. It's a contradiction. No, no. Of, of course you still need the explanation. The, of course you do. The theology is yeah. still on the table here. We right. still have to deal with the phenomena of scripture and with, yeah. 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 Sorry. I mean, but, but my fear is like, I, I fear that people, in apologetics, have a view of apologetics that I just have never understood. And it's all about sort of like winning an argument and, and like, you know, convincing the skeptic and all that. Look, um, that's you shouldn't be trying to win an argument. I mean, you know, the Jesus last commandment before he died was not, um, Hey, make sure you win the arguments and all that. Yeah. That, that, that's not what people should be doing as apologists. Um, moreover, convincing somebody that's not your job. Never has been, never will be. That's up to God. Let, you know, God can do that. And only God, um, that's, you're not going to do it. Yeah. So, so, don't have that view of apologetics. So what's the role of apologetics? Simply to take the, the, the truth, the true theory, complete as it can be. And um, if, there is a, if there's a genuine objection to it, um, that sort of shows a, a serious problem, well, try to... Um, try to understand whether it is, in fact, a problem. And when I say genuine objection, look, people can charge incoherence and badness all they want. People do look at, I mean, look around the globe. The people can say and do say all sorts of things they haven't thought about. Mm -hmm. They're just in the mood to say, well, that's, you know, nonsense, or that's this, that's that. Nobody should be taking two minutes to 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 answer these charges. Yeah. If somebody is actually after the truth and they formulate a serious problem with uh, the theolo with the theology, that should be addressed because these people are trying to understand it in a truth seeking fashion, and that should be addressed. But any other sort of activity of, uh, you, you know, not going to win the debate or you're not going to convince, um, you know, even James Anderson, who in a very prescient work um, that I know you know well, his Paradox Christian Theology, he, um, you know, he anticipated a glut theoretic solution. But one comment, uh, one objection he had was that this will never um uh, I can't remember exactly, but it's something like it won't convince, uh, you know, unless you're already convinced. Um, but I thought, 
Well, that's not that's not our job anyhow. So mm. um, that's that's a great point. And you're some people might say that your reformed uh, upbringing might be showing its its colors here, um, but not not necessarily so. But I, I do like what you said. It's not our job to convince, but but that we still have explanation on the on the table. And yes, you can still use the quantum move to, to and, and, explain and motivate and. That yeah. that's exactly right. Sorry, I got no, no, no again, all these questions are just so good <laughs> and so rich, and there there are a bunch of issues around. Them. Yeah, explanation. I mean, anyone who thinks who doesn't look and and not just look, but actually engage with my book, I had never thought of that. That people might just think I'm just sort of saying, "Oh, here, just say that," and uh, no, I'm not telling you how to respond to somebody. This is a contribution because it's for. It's for those people who are actually trying to get at the truth of the matter. And this strikes me as a step in that direction. Um, It was never in an explanation is very much uh, a responsibility when you're trying to get at the truth of something. Yeah. Well, so, so finishing up uh, here, you, you got to come back to talk about uh, the, the Trinity book as well. There's so many things that I, that I want to ask as well, but um, uh, so on James Anderson's note, um, why go further than his macro is merely apparent contradiction uh, resulting from unarticulated uh, equivocation? Why, why, for the for the lay person, they might say, "Well, it's a mystery." You know, we, uh, the creator creature distinction. They might not even use that word, but he's God and we're not, so there's a mystery there. Why go beyond mystery to uh, affirm uh, contradiction? Well, any of your viewers who have hung around this long uh, are, are, are really uh, seriously after the truth. Uh, and so, um, uh, so I'm comfortable answering that. Yeah, I think that um, James Anderson's account is, um, out of all the consistency-seeking uh, uh, accounts, his is probably better than the rest, largely because it doesn't change the topic. It doesn't sort of, um, it doesn't look heretical in some, you know, uh, sheep's clothing or whatever, however you want to put it um, and so on. Um, And I think it's the closest competitor to this, the account I advance. Mm -hmm. Um, And by that, I mean, uh, we, the two of us, uh, James Anderson and I, agree on um, all the claims and what's wrong with most of the views out there. At least, I mean, his book was published some time ago, but, you know, I I think he would probably largely agree with my criticisms of stuff that have come since. Um, But um, we both agree that, that, Christ is apparently contradictory and the ways around that are if they don't fall into heresy, which all that means in this context is give up the, give up the theory altogether. Um, If they don't fall into heresy, then they just, um, they get complicated and it looks in, in decreasingly uh, motivated as the complications and sort of. um, Okay. I think we both agree with that. Um, but now talking of explanation, um, 
You know, so Anderson and I both say Christ is an apparently contradictory being. Mm -hmm. um, and you ask us, well, what's the explanation for the apparent contradiction? I say the reality is contradictory. That's the, and and it and that's that's the long and short of it. Um, James Anderson says, "No, it's a defect in our epistemic, you know, um, uh, position, together with this complicated sort of story of uh, um, of." Um, uh, God's relation to us. I mean, there's some there's there's some different stuff that goes on there too. And my comments about the you know the analogical language and and all that, I would apply that equally here. I mean, if if the ultimate explanation that Anderson gives boils down to that a lot of our language is analogical because there's some equivocations that we miss or something like this, then. Uh, I think contrary to appearance, we're actually engaged in different things. I think we're speaking univocally of, of Christ and univocally of God. It's just that it's hard to, it's, it's hard to know how much of the truth we're getting and, and that sort of thing. But um, uh, anyway, so my explanation for the apparent contradiction is the reality is contradictory. Anderson's is no, it's, you know, we have this, this epistemology and we're in this certain epistemic situation and we can't help but see the apparent contradiction because, but if we could see beyond um, and get to see where the equivocation falls, then the apparent contradiction would dissolve. Right. Um, to me, uh, this is fueled by one and only one thing, and that is a commitment to uh, classical logic. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, I don't, I simply don't know a good argument for that commitment. Hmm. And again, I look at, at, I look at it as, is it Christ that's fueling the flight from, uh, uh, a contradictory account, or is it, um, you know, um, an unrelenting commitment to this account of class of, of logic. And I cannot help, but think it's the latter. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I wonder, there's this weird theory. I don't know if it's true or not about, about theories, um, a theory about the meta theory about theories trickling down from the Academy to the popular, you know, parlance and stuff. And so I wonder if, you know, 10 years from now, uh, the subclassical logics will come down and all of us will be like, Oh, in subclassical. Yeah. There was a time where we didn't worry about, or we were, we, we thought they were evil and now we're okay with them. I wonder if that'll be, maybe your, your project here will kind of uni unite theology and philosophy and be kind of a, uh, a, a firework there, a uh, uh, starting pistol or something. Um, but uh, Dr. Bealy, you've been so generous with all your time here. This has been an awesome conversation. I really, really appreciate all your time and letting me pick your brain on all this stuff that you've written entire books and, and uh, articles on, and then asking me, uh, me asking you to do that in, in 
five minutes. And then, so I, I really appreciate you stepping on the ledge there and helping me think through this stuff. Well, it's, it's um, been a delight. I can tell that, you know, you, you yourself are trying to think hard through it and get to the right spot. And um, so I'm always happy to talk. I do feel bad. I mean, I can't believe the time because it feels like, we didn't really, uh, there were just so many big things and some of them kind of unrelated. And so it feels like this long thing, um, which I mean, I loved it, but I'm just thinking, you know, uh, um, we should try, we should, yeah, in the future, we'll just pick one topic and we'll, <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is, if it's logic, <laughs> or theology, yeah. or whatever, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, no, awesome. I, I appreciate it. And, um, yeah, I hope that, I hope that that's been, uh, helpful and interesting. Yeah. Well, um, that's going to have to do it folks for now. Um, but, uh, Lord willing, we're going to continue this conversation. This has been Parker's Pensies and as always all glory to God.